is entitled The Son of Man. We're going to talk about Jesus as the Son of Man. And as I brought up before in the call to worship, discomfort tends to bring change, doesn't it? If you're discomfortable, if you're sitting, your leg falls asleep, what do you do? You move, you shift your weight, you, you rectify that situ- situation. Um, but a lot of times, change brings about discomfort. And so they can be a double-edged sword. It can come from both sides. Sometimes it's short-term change, and sometimes it's for the long-term. Long-term tends to be a little slower in, in coming about, and it's a little slower in changing. And we're not big fans of change. The older we get, the less we enjoy change. The newfangled music or what may it, it may be, or um, I wish we'd just do it the old, like we did in the old days. But change is neither bad nor good, though it can result in both. However, it usually brings about anxiety, doesn't it? Change always seems to bring out discomfort, which tends to lean toward anxiety. And there is a whole other kind of change. There's forced change. Maybe it's our government, such as seatbelts are now required, or there's a sales tax that's being put it on. Or maybe it's in our environment. Maybe we have a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake, and that changes our life for many people forever. Maybe it's sinner in our lives. Maybe it's now people, they won't talk to you anymore. Or hearts were broken or love was lost. The change that will happen at the end of days will not be comfortable for anyone. And there will be trying times. And whether we find ourselves in suffering or searching, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus to find our joy. If you've ever seen the acrostic for Jesus, or for joy, it's Jesus, others, you. And if you can keep that in that priority, then you can do well uh, to pursue joy. So if you have a Bible in front of you or on your, your lap, possibly, uh, the red ones in the pews are the best ones to read when I am. I'm reading the New Living Translation. Revelation chapter 1 We're going to start in verse 8 and go through 11. We're going to finish the chapter this week. And I know you're you're probably wondering, well, eight verses last week took an hour, Shane. What's it going to be this way? Well, we'll do our best. Can't promise anything. All right. I'll try to keep off the tangents, though. Oh, excuse me. I guess we're in verse 9. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance in which Jesus called us. I was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard beyond, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast and it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That much Greek I can get. Thank you. Thank you. 
because you get some of those other Greek names, you get start reading in the book of Acts and get those names, and I'm like, him, him, her, and him, I think. I'm not sure. It could be a her, right? So our first point today is John the suffering servant. John the suffering servant. John comes in at an equal footing to us. Do you notice that? Do you see how he describes himself? He says, I am your brother and your partner in suffering. And then, as he ends that sentence, the patient endurance which Jesus called us, not called you or called me to, called us to. I think that is wonderful. John never puts himself on a pedestal, and Revelation is is the same case. He is a very humble man and is a very humble servant of the Lord. I really appreciate that in John's writing, and it comes out very well. So your, your brother, your partner in suffering, like John 2, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask that you please do not look at me as someone who is better or greater than you. I am very capable of sin, as you are, and we are both working through this journey together. What makes me stronger is when you grow stronger, and what makes you grow stronger is when I grow stronger. So as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's what we're trying to do. That's what Sunday mornings is kind of about, um, bringing up the caliber of our Christian walk. Uh, You push me and I push you, right? And we both get up the hill. How it works, I don't really know. (laughs) It's because the Holy Spirit's pushing in the back, right? So when he's pushing hard, then we're doing well. Together we have a mission to share the gospel. We have a mission to reach the lost, the dying, the broken. That is our mission. To share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, our friends, and our coworkers. It is time to get a little radical with the little time that we have. Speaking of radical, what a story John's got here, isn't it? Like, hey, you're in your 90s. Let's go to the Isle of Patmos because you're exiled there because you were speaking about the gospel. What, what got him there most likely was writing the gospel of John a few years prior to this. They say that he wrote it around Uh, 90. This is right around 96, so there's a six-year gap. He either was exiled because he wrote the gospel or just because he was that vocal about his gospel, and then he got to the Isle of Patmos, and then they made a mistake of giving him paper and pen, and he wrote it all down (laughs) so we can have it today. And what a blessing John's gospel is. It's much different than the, the first three. It gives a lot of different details of Jesus' life, and it really fills in some of the Messiahship of Christ. So together we have a mission to share. And John, he shares as he writes an eyewitness account so that we might know it to be true and choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jerusalem has fallen, and Jesus is sent to the Isle of Pat... Jesus, yeah through the Holy Spirit, connected to John. John is sent to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God for his testimony about Jesus. He says that. That's, it's a written statement there in Revelation. This could be a direct result of writing the gospel, 
and he's an old man, and like I said earlier, he's probably there, sent there to starve to death. The only way he's going to make it is somebody else's fish for him. Now, he's a professional fisherman, but he's 90-some-odd years old. He might be able to do it under God's grace, but he, also, he does, definitely has the know-how, doesn't he? I mean, he grew up fishing, so one thing he could always do is throw a pole over, right? How he's going to cook that food, I don't really know, because there's not a lot happening on the Isle of Patmos. Hey, what do you want to do today? Do you want to go center the lone tree? Oh, I think they cut it down yesterday for the firewood, right? It was a prison. Think about the people that are there. They're either criminals that are legitimately supposed to be there, or they are um, left out there because they're exiled like John was. Regardless, the food is probably low, and the character of people at the island goes down when food goes down, right? But John somehow gets multiple letters off the island to the churches, and he never loses hope, because you see in, uh, in the letters, I think it's 3 John, that he is planning to visit Gaius, his, I, I would say he was probably one of his, the guys that he was discipling. But we know him as a friend in Asia Minor, and this speaks in, to me in a mighty way. It speaks in, to me in a mighty way because he, we still have the freedom to share our faith. We can go and assemble where we please for now, and John is in exile, and he uses that time to plan how he's going to build the church up. He's like, well, I can't be there in person, but when I get there, I'm going to do this, 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 this. you got to watch out for this guy, this guy, this guy, because he was very harmful to me. And it's just amazing to see what he is doing with the little resources that he has. kind of puts us to shame with the abundance of resources that we have here in the United States. So, he's still concerned about the church. He is still on mission. And his voice to God's people, I believe, is stronger than ever. It's stronger than ever, as he would be, he would have been one of the last eyewitnesses who spent time with Jesus. And definitely one of the very I would maybe the only guy that's spent time with Jesus before he started his ministry, as we saw his calling. So what is your story? What has God called you to? How are you converted to Christianity? Have you surrendered your life to, to Jesus? Maybe that's where you need to start. How does that story go? When was the last time you told that story? Whether you're practicing, whether you said it to yourself, maybe you've gone through it. It's good to go through, even in your own head. But when was the last time you were able to share that with a coworker, a friend, a family member? Did Jesus change your life? Or did you stay the same? Did Jesus really change your life? Because if he really did change your life, then you have a story. Amen? If he didn't, then you got to ask, was I even saved in the first place? Has my pattern of sin continued? 
And I don't want to discourage you because sometimes it just takes a little bit of a jump start and get an attention and keep going. Sometimes it's well, you got to be willing to take a hard look at your life and really say, did I really surrender to the Lord or am I still doing it my way? If he had changed you, who are you going to tell? Do you have somebody in mind that you could talk to about Jesus? Because if you don't, there's a problem too. Because that should be somebody we're praying for, somebody that we're investing our time, our talent, and our treasure in, that we're intersecting Jesus into our conversation, that he may show up in that person's life. Right? So if you haven't changed, I ask again, did you really surrender to him? So what is your story? It is important to know how Christ has changed your life from the beginning, maybe your salvation story. It's also important to know how the Lord changed your story last week. You know, how's God working in your life on a daily basis? So as we go, I want to challenge you. What's your story? Are you willing to share that? So whether we are in suffering or searching, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus to find our joy. Can you find joy in suffering? Absolutely. Is it easy? No, because we want happy joy, right? No, we don't. But happy joy isn't always sustainable. So sorrowful joy is just as important to know and understand and be familiar with. It's not near as fun, though. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like a mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Well, Shane, what, what are all these symbols? What do they mean? What do they look like? Well, remember what I talked about last week when we are looking at Revelation? Sometimes it, it helps to read on just a little bit, and then you'll understand. We're going to come back and describe some of these sevens and, and things because guess what? Jesus tells us what they are. And the best way to interpret Scripture and God's holy word is to listen to what Jesus says first and then interpret it off of that, right? So, the Son of Man. John saw the Son of Man. He could have said, and then I saw Jesus. He could have left it there, right? And then I saw Jesus. Or as we like to say, and then I found $5. That's right. If you ever have a, if you ever have a bad story that you're not sure is going to, you know, like nobody's, they're drifting off, they're not paying attention, you can always end it with, and then I found $5. Because everybody likes a five spot every once in a while thrown in the story. And they're like, really? No, but I got your attention now. And you're like, see, now you're all paying attention too. 
Even Lauren came back in the room. He's like, what? I got to hear this story. <laughs> That's right. So he could have said, I saw Jesus, but he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that very often in the book of Revelation. So I'm just going to throw this out there for you. When John, he describes it. That's what Jesus told him to do. Describe what you see. Don't say, and then I saw Jesus. He's standing next to God, and they're in front of this chair that they call the throne. No, he describes the throne. He des- describes the aura in the room, and he's, the majesty, the holiness. The, Jesus, he looked like his feet were on fire with this bronzed presence. Holiness was just coming out of him. It was amazing. So, what does this description remind you of? I know what it reminds me of. It reminds me of another description or commissioning story in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. It reminds me of the commissioning story in Ezekiel. It reminds me of other commissioning stories that you see. But we're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 4. Isaiah writes, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He could have stopped there too, couldn't he have? He could have stopped right there. He was sitting in a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. Each had six wings, with two wings covering their faces, two that covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly armies, heaven's armies, the whole earth, is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple and its foundations, and the building was filled with smoke. And guess what? They weren't even the most powerful being in the room. The building can barely hold their power. It shakes every time they speak. Buildings don't last that long when they shake every, every time something speaks, right? It's not going to happen. Just think when God spoke, Jesus spoke to John, it thundered. It thundered. Wow. It's not the voice I remember you having down on earth, Lord. And yet it is. You know, the same authority, I'm sure, translated well. So we see many of the same descriptions. They speak to God's purity, to Jesus' purity. We have white robes. We have the gold sash, which means he is the king, or there's some kingship that goes along there with it. They had to cover their eyes because they were in the presence of holiness. And then in Revelation, we see the Son of Man described as holding seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. What do we know that a sharp sword would do? It would cut down the Lord's enemies, wouldn't it? And who do we know is the Lord's enemy? Satan? Yeah, that's definitely one. Anybody that doesn't choose the Lord, right? Because it says, he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. Praise God for his forgiveness, because so I, I struggle with that inside me, right? When I read things like this, I'm like, man, I want to get my act together a little bit better. I want to pursue holiness. And I'm like, how do I start that? Well, another thing is, 
What's piercing? It's, it's his tongue, right? That is the sword. Well, it's God's word. That's what pierces our heart. That's what changes people's lives. I think I could get out of here today. I think sometimes for me, I get frustrated as a pastor because sometimes I feel I could read God's word and we'd have the sermon in itself. Sometimes when we get into difficult things, well, what's it mean with the sword coming out of the mouth revelation? Uh, It needs to be explained a little bit. But I hope we get to the point where you guys can relish in God's word like that too. Because it's not necessarily looking at the passage as a whole, though that's helpful, right? Sometimes it's looking at what did God speak to you in that passage. And you should be able to read through God's word. Maybe it's one, two, three chapters. And find something out of there that's meaningful for you that day. And meditate on it. And ruminate on it. And let that sink into your heart a little bit. And into your mind. And that is what pierces our soul, isn't it? That's what pierces our soul. And that's what we, what we long to do. So we see holiness radiating from him and this sharp sword. What else can we use a a sword for? You can flip it the other way, and you can see a shepherd could possibly use a sword to separate the sheep from the goats, right? We see that in Matthew 25, 31 through um, 46, where Jesus is going to come in the last days. He's going to separate he may use his staff, he may use his sword, but uh, there's definitely a picture of righteous judgment that we'll all have to stand before and give an account for our lives. And where are we going to stand? Are you going to be on his right or are you going to be on his left? Those on his left, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Those on his right, says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So we need to trust and obey. Like we talked about last week, obedience is key to faith. And it shows that God's grace has penetrated our hearts as we walk in obedience to him. Right? So who are we following? Well, we see a picture of Jesus who is fierce. He will not put up with sin. He will not put up with repetitive sin. Let that penetrate into your heart a little bit. He will not put up with Repetitive sin. I'm going to say it again because it's repetitive. It's the third time. It's kind of funny. He will not put up with repetitive sin. And my hard heart has a hard time dealing with that because I like my sin. I think it makes me feel good. But not in the long run, it doesn't, right? You ever step back from repetitive sin and you see the habit that it's formed and you see the rut that it's taking you down and not always just you, but your family, because you can see it coming out in your kids, and you're like, am I like that? And you're like, I, I don't know where he got that one from. Well, if you ever say that, then you're not honest with yourself, right? Or you are, and you're just throwing a smoke screen up. We serve a fierce God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He has the power to cast us into heaven or to hell, right? All authority, all authority on heaven, on earth, and on the earth 
is the Lord's. That's why we fear the Lord. It's not because, hey, you know, he's, he's my friend. He would never do that to me. He's, he loves me. He's a God that loves me. Yeah, God always loves us. It's us that's the problem, right? We don't always love him. Sometimes we love ourselves a little bit too much. That's the trap of sin. It's not what God does. It's what we do. We need to take responsibility for our actions, right? A.K.A., hey, we get back to it again. Obedience. So he's not going to put up with this sin. There's a time for a reckoning, and he is the judge. Why is Jesus the judge? Because he's the righteous judge. Why is he the righteous judge? Because he never sinned. He walked through, and he faced all the temptations, and he never sinned. Whoa. The time for obedience, in John's case, it's over. He is standing before a holy God. He probably thinks he's going to die. The only thing he's got going for him, he says, to write it down. The only way I can know I'm going to make it through this is he told me to write it down. It means I probably need to give it to somebody, right? This is pretty amazing to me. And he is standing before a holy judge, and we're going to get into his reaction in just a bit. The time for obedience is over. Christ has come to take what is his and burn off what is left. Where do you stand? Are you your own God or are you allowing Christ Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, your God? What do your actions say to prove it? Can you go back to last week and say, this is what I did for the Lord and this is what I did for myself? I worked on countertops. Did I do that for my glory or did I do it for the Lord's glory? Well, now I'm going to have to work extra hard on those things because I'm doing them for the Lord, right? Even though there's, you get to a point sometimes you just want to say, well, that's good enough. Whether it's on countertops or in our holiness walk or walking toward righteousness, we get, well, that's good enough. I don't want to get too convicted. You can have all these things, but not the dirty closet, Lord. I'm not cleaning that one out today, right? And those are, Difficult decisions that we need to make before a holy God. Do we stand in the presence of a holy God? All the time. Let that one sink in. Can he see what's on your phone screen? All the time. Can he see what's, what you see? Yes. Does he know your thoughts? Are his thoughts higher than our thoughts? Are his ways higher than our ways? Did he write down his ways so we can know them? It's a no-brainer, right? The only reason why we wouldn't do that is because we're stubborn and we want what we want. And so we'll take what we want, right? And there's all kinds of wrong in that. Oh, boy. Faith is proved right in its actions. And when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we don't have anything to worry about when it comes to our salvation, do we? We know that we are saved because we can see a product of that salvation. Right? If you ever wonder if you're saved, you've got to wonder, what did you do last week? Are you walking in the light? Or are you doing your own thing? That's your answer right there. If you're doing your own thing, you've got some things to work out between you and the Lord. Some surrender. Our God is a fierce God. He's mighty, 
powerful force. The Proverbs say over and over, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The sinner is terrified of this picture of Christ. The sinner drops dead before a holy God. There's not too many people out there who are probably better than John. What does he do? Drops dead before. I feel like I it just fell to the floor, dead. I can't stand in the presence of holiness. I cannot do it. It doesn't happen. I have to get away because I'm a broken, corrupt being. I am not worthy to be in his presence. I will surely die. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips is what Isaiah says, and we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, Praise God, he doesn't leave us in this corrupt state, does he? He offers hope. He offers a way out. He offers us a place to be transformed. It begins with the transforming, with the renewing of our minds. He reveals his truth to us and changes our hearts to surrender daily to him. It's a daily process. It's a daily cleansing. Sometimes it's an hourly cleansing. Sometimes it's like, Lord, help me, I'm in the middle of it, right? I guess maybe I'm the only one that, no, I don't think so. I see too many smiles, right? So out of these changes, our lifestyle is transformed into the likeness of Christ. We become more compassionate. We become slow to anger. Patience is developed, endurance in the suffering. But pastor, how do I know I'm going to get to heaven? How do I know? I tell you the truth. It will show up in your lifestyle. If you want to know that you have salvation, work the steps. Now, I'm not saying that if you've asked the sinner's prayer like the guy on the cross, he died and rose. God said he rose. Today you'll be with me in, in paradise, the guy on the cross next to Jesus, right? So we have that opportunity. But why wait? And if you proclaim Christ in your life now, then it should show up in your lifestyle. That's called sanctification. You are giving up yourself and allowing Christ to be more and more abundant in your life. So you'll have no doubt of your salvation when Christ is at work in your life. Surrender to his grace. It's a free gift that he offers. Walk in faith and allow Christ to produce good works in you through faith by His grace. Okay? That's how it works. A.K.A. the definition of obedience. Right there. Huh. You're not getting off of that, are you? Nope. So whether we are in suffering or searching, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus to find our joy. The last scripture we're going to read today out of Revelation There's more we're going to read, but not out of Revelation. Verse 17 through the end of the chapter. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. The right reaction when you're in the presence of holiness. You are not bigger than he is. You are a dead person. But he lay his, his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning 
of the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand, the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay? So see how we were patient and we waited to verse 20 to get the answers of what happened clear back in 13-ish through 16? That's kind of cool, huh? So Jesus command. He tells him to write these things down. Remember, we need to remember something. John has seen Jesus in real life. And not just like for a day. Like, oh, I remember seeing him one time at a conference in, in Missouri down there. You know, I saw him once and he was a really good speaker. Just a really good speaker. No, John lived with Jesus for three and a half years. John knew the character of Jesus. He knew who he was on the earth. He knew who he was in heaven. He didn't have to point him out. He knew which one Jesus was, right? He could pick him out of the crowd. And the fact that he was glowing bright kind of helped draw his eye to him, right? But he knew who he was before. He didn't, he didn't need a descriptor. I think that's awesome. He was an eyewitness to what Jesus did here on earth. And he is an eyewitness to what he's doing in heaven. John also wrote his eyewitness account a few years earlier. And now he suffers for Christ because of it. Christ tells John, do not be afraid. You're about ready to starve to death. Don't be afraid. You're about ready to, you don't know if you're going to catch a fish tomorrow. Don't be afraid. Remember that time I put the offering in that fish for Peter? That was great, wasn't it? Right? And he went out there and he got his offering and my offering both. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. Did the sparrows worry about tomorrow? All these things are going through John's head. Are we remembering those things when anxiety of life are coming up on us? Not as much as maybe we should. That's becoming a tagline, I think. I have anxiety. I have anxiety. You also have a Savior. Cast your cares on Christ because he cares for you. Don't forget that. That has to be your go-to first. It's not always, it doesn't always fix everything, but it sure does help. John falls down like he was dead. He is in the presence of holiness. This is a picture of what any sinner would do if he were to go to heaven. He would die instantly. He falls down like he is dead. How do I know that? Because anybody that gets called up into heaven has the same reaction. Okay? Anybody that's standing in the presence feels like they're going to die. Moses at the burning bush, he fell because he knew he was on holy ground because God told him for one, but two, it's like, uh, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Don't let that dirt touch me because I am clean. Just like in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, it says, Then I said, this is Isaiah, It is all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I, I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heavenly, heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips with it and said, This coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. 
Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to these people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. This is Isaiah's commissioning. This Isaiah would have been a young, young man, not even a teenager yet, probably, when he got was commissioned. Because the span of kings that he lived through, we know that he was pretty he had a long one of the longest services as a prophet of the Lord. A time where he agreed to speak for the Lord. John did the same thing, and Jesus reaches down, picks him up. So, Pastor, have you ever experienced anything like that? Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, and I don't tell the story very often. I've only told it in church once, other time. And I don't say this because I'm all that in a bag of chips. I'm telling you this because I've experienced something similar to this. And... I'll just tell you my story. This is my testimony because I, I should be prepared to share my testimony. I am. So back in the fourth grade, I remember a missionary coming in and we were down the church basement because we didn't have air conditioning and it was cooler down the church basement. But you know what that does to the church piano that's in the church basement? You either tune a half step down or you got half of it tuned to right and half of it tuned a half step down, which was our basement. And I would sing loud and I'd sing to that piano but I always picked the wrong note to sing to. I don't know if I sang to the bass line. I don't know what it is. We're singing. They all. My brother turns over to me. He's just like, dude, stop. All right. Which bothered me. I love to sing. I don't know if you guys know that, but I do love to sing. That's how it goes. And I remember this missionary challenging us. Maybe you might be called to the mission field. And I'm thinking to myself, well, could I go to the mission field? And even from that young age, I, I always said I'd be open because you never tell God never because that's where you'll go. Uh, so I was like, I'm open to the mission field, but I really felt like the Lord said no, that you're not going to go there. You're going to find a, a much harder place to share the gospel. And that, I kind of felt like he was calling me to the pastorate, I guess, at that point in time. And so I asked my mom, well, how do you know? How did, how did Pastor Clawson know? that he was called to be a pastor. And, well, you'll know. One thing that Pastor Clausen always taught me was that just try to do anything else. And if you can do it, then do it, because being a pastor is not fun. It's not all kicks and giggles all the time, right? I'm sure Pastor Clausen didn't say kicks and giggles, that's for sure. But it's not fun. You deal with heartache. You deal with hard times. You deal with death on a daily basis. You deal with people's anxieties. And you care about them, so then, therefore, it gives you anxiety. And if you're not cut out for it, don't do it. So I remember that. And I rested in, well, Lord, if you're calling me to the mission field or if you're calling me into the pastorate, then you're going to call me. It's going to be something I can't deny, and it's going to be amazing. So I rested in that, and I went to school. I went to Western Illinois University, and I became a farmer. I, went to, I got my degree in agronomy, which means corn and soybeans, and wheat and hay and all those things. And um, I can do a pretty darn good garden, unless I can't. But it all starts with the soil, right? 
Um, so the parable of the four soils in the Bible, I got that down. I know, I know what that's all about, right? So I'm going along and I'm growing deeper, walking closer. I graduate college. I get my graduation day and I remember I left my hat in there or my diploma. I can't remember which, the little jacket that had it. And I walked back in there, it was under my seat. And I remember distinctly the Lord telling me, you'll never use that degree ever in your lifetime. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. I don't know what that means. But there was nobody else in that room. It was just me. And I was like, whoa, that was really weird. I walked back out and I was like, wow, that's crazy. So I went to do what I'm trained to do, even though I know I'm not going to do it for the rest of my life. But I, I went to work for Pioneer for a few years and I'm um, got a couple other jobs, broke my jaw at my, at my friend's college, and here I am trying to pay off these medical bills, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay off these medical bills and, and um, what I'm going to do. So I'm a little angry at the Lord because I'm filling out a job for an agronomy position. And I said, you said I didn't have to do this. You said I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. And he says, well, what do you want to do? Okay, it was pretty audible again. It's one of those like in the gym moments in my head. It wasn't like outside the door or anything. It was maybe I'm crazy, but I'm, I don't think so. And so I said, this is what I want to do. I, I got my agronomy position filled out, my resume all filled out. And I said, I want to be in youth ministry. I want the church to contact me and I want it to be soon because... Um, of all this stuff. So he says, okay. Um, two days later, Dorothy Green calls me on the phone. Says, you ever think about being a youth minister before? I can't guarantee you anything, but fill out your application, get it down here as fast as you can. All right, I'll do that. So I did. And that was the beginning of the end. I had to give it over to the Lord a couple times. There's a moment in between there. Brandy was a sophomore in college, I believe, and I had graduated the year prior. She invited me to go to an university thing. She invited me to go. So I went, and we were down at the Holodome in Decatur, Illinois. And if you've ever been to the Holodome, it was like the biggest hotel until you've gone to something bigger. And then you're like, oh, that's kind of actually kind of small. But to us, it was the Holodome. It was huge, right? And uh, I think it was just in the name, maybe. I don't know. So we get in there, and we're in this worship conference. The, the music was amazing, um, and they said, we're going to stay here while you guys break off to go to your different groups. We're going to stay in here and, and worship for a little bit. And so um, we're going to do something a little di bit different, and we're going to ask for a, a shout of praise. If you got something you want to pray to the Lord, you can go ahead and do this. And so they, they said, okay, we'll, we'll do that. Um, so there's different sporadic praises going on, and I went to open my mouth to, to pray to the Lord, and I got this vision of the Lord. I felt like my physical self died. My spiritual self came out. Uh, the Lord was off to my right, and he was veiled behind something. I don't know what it was, but you could see the kind of glory kind of come around, and I am like, woe is me, because I just read Isaiah. I'm a man 
of unclean lips. Um, then test the spirit, right? Is the spirit from the Lord? That's very, very important to do. Uh, he says, yeah, Shane, it's me. And that was the friendliest he ever got because it's like, yeah, I'm, it's me. And then um, I was terrified again. And I felt him giving a blessing to those kids in that room and it was coming around and I knew it was coming to me. It was going to focus on me and I was terrified once again because I'm standing in the presence of the Holy God and I could see my life coming up before me in a weird way, uh, kind of like a menu that of images and I could see all these little things that I didn't think were that big of a deal. But when you're standing in the presence of holiness... It is a huge deal because it separates us. It's that chasm between you and God that you can't break. And when I thought myself saying, it's okay, again, he says, no, it's not. I mean, he didn't say that all of but it was kind of like, a, are we going to keep continue this? Because if we are, then you're going to have to humble yourself about right now, which it did. And I got to a place where I was like stuck then. I kind of felt like my physical and spiritualness was outside. And he turned to me and he came to me and said, um, tackle, tackle is the only thing I could understand. Well, if you look at uh, the book of Daniel at the time I just read, it says, mind, mind, tackle, parson. And um, I knew two, they're all bad now that I've studied that passage. There, there's nothing's good about that. Um, but the middle one, which was tekel, means you've been weighed on the scale and found wanting. Okay, well, that means that you didn't measure up. Well, in a sense, I didn't measure up either, but I knew that Jesus did. And so I surrendered to him that day, in a sense, what I wanted to do. It, was, it wasn't like a sanctification, but it was a sanctification moment, okay? Because I had already surrendered my life. I don't, I don't think I would have got to this point if I hadn't. Okay, and my walk with the Lord. So he, I really felt like he commissioned me, and I had a friend that happened to be at the conference that was sitting way over, saw me over, praising the Lord, comes up and gives me this big hug, and I just felt like everything came back together. And I was like, wow. And I said, I don't know what all that was about. Told the story later, but I really think the Lord just called me in the ministry. And I think that's what he did. So fast forward to the time when I applied for the youth director position. Um, coming to find out from Craig's point of view, who was on the, the hiring committee, uh, they had somebody hired. They had them all ready to go. And I reached out again and says, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this position. And it says, well, you just need to wait. You just need to wait. Uh, they get there, that, and, I, and I gave it back to the Lord. Lord, if this is your thing, this is you. I'm giving it over, and I surrendered once again. And I found out that Sunday that the guy's wife said, I, I, this isn't the right job for, for you, and they apologized, and they didn't come back out. And then that opened the door for me, the least qualified by far of all the applications. Um, but God has worked in me. And why? It's because I, I do my best to be obedient to the grace that he's poured out to us, right? I I'm not, haven't always been a very gifted speaker. I haven't, haven't been a gifted musician. I haven't been 
the most popular kid or anything like that. But God still uses those things in me, and he's given me, he's blessed me with so much more uh, since then because I've given it back to him. And when we surrender these gifts, these abilities, these things, God works on us in such an amazing way. And does he project um, good times for the rest of my life? No. No, there's still suffering. There's still hurting. But guess what? Well, one, I think, well, at least I'm not where John is on the Isle of Patmos. But if I were, am I still going to follow the Lord? Absolutely. How do I know? How can I be confident of that? Because I've done it in the past, and I know that my God is faithful. So I will do it in the future because I know he is faithful, and he will walk alongside me, and he will direct my path. He will give me the strength. He will give me what I need. Because whether we are in suffering or we're searching, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus to find our joy. Amen. Let's pray before we take communion. Uh, Elders, you might as well come on up. I think there's four of you in here, so that works out good. We got four trays this week. (laughs) Thank you, Danielle, for putting that together. Lord Jesus, thank you. We praise you for revealing yourself to those who love you. Lord, we thank you for your time together with you, for your calling. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to open our ears to hear that still, small voice, to hear what you have for us. You are a God who walks alongside, who picks us up when we stumble, who carries us when we can't go on, who loves us more than we could ever know or imagine. Lord, you are a God who brings holiness to the situation and you will offer forgiveness so we can get back into communion with you, Lord. For this we praise you. You are a God who saves. Lord, we also ask for forgiveness when we turn to our right or to our left, to our own pleasures, to our own desires, to our own agenda. Lord, forgive us. Allow us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name.